right, welcome back. This is the Contempt Webinar brought to you by O'Neill Wasaki Family Lawyers. This uh, session, we are going to talk about considerations in drafting contempt orders. So we've already talked about enforcement in general. We've talked about affirmative defensive pleadings. We've talked about the trial of the case. So now we're going to talk about drafting the contempt orders. And I'm joined in this session by two lawyers in my office, Jerry Height, one of my partners, and Carrie Bertrand, one of my associate attorneys. And they're going to help me present to you on this issue of drafting contempt orders. So, all right, Jerry. Yes. I, I have you and Carrie here very specifically to help me talk about this because I know <laughs> how particular you are in drafting orders in general, and I know you're particular in contempt drafting. So, uh, what are some important things about drafting an order that finds somebody in contempt? Well, it, it's going to mirror in, in, in many ways your petition in that it needs to identify the order that was enforced, the specific language, and then it needs to break down each individual uh, violation and, and whatever the finding of the court and the ruling of the court is for each violation independently. You can't lump anything together or uh, it's going to be void. Um, that is the area to put the most emphasis. Obviously, to be a finding of contempt, or that contempt might be suspended, uh, depending on which way you go. Uh, if it is suspended, there'll be terms of suspension, uh, and then you're going to have an attorney's fee judgment. I mean, that's the basic outline Basic outline. Yeah. Basic framework. Um, all right, so the the order itself, finding contempt, has to be clear and specific, right? What if the order grants probation? Like, how do you draft a probation order? Well, you still find the violation of each specific. Uh, you, you, you write down each violation specifically still. You, you hold the, the person in contempt, and you commit them, and then there's just a suspension of the commitment, and then you have your probatory terms, terms. Okay. and those those are usually continued compliance. If there's a child support, there'll be an arrearage. Uh, there'll be often court costs and fees associated. Attorneys' fees sometimes are thrown in there. There's the list of what they have to do, or it's gonna uh, their suspension is going to be <laughs> withdrawn, and they get to go to jail. Yeah. Um, what about an oral contempt motion is that allowed I mean can the judge just say from the bench like I find you in contempt and sentence you to jail no okay it needs to be in writing and what's the timing of that like how I mean you know how we are as lawyers like you have right. a trial in a normal case and the judge issues a ruling and then you come back to the office and you know you tell your staff hey you need to draft an order on this and maybe next week they'll get around to it are the rules the same in a contempt case? Not at all. The the uh, contemptor is entitled to uh, an almost immediate rule uh, order, and so uh, as a practitioner, you should always take an order to the court that you're going to want signed that day. And that's both going to be your contempt order, and if there's commitment, your commitment order, and they both need to be signed by the court. Does it have to be signed contemporaneously with the granting of the ruling? No, it does not. But the t the timeline between when when the ruling is and when the order is put in place is not defined under Texas law. Three days is too long. Uh, it's it's not proper if it's three days. So you might as well do it while you're there and try to get it all signed off on at the time. And from I know what you've seen many times as an appellate lawyer, 
that's a hurried bit of drafting, and oftentimes people make mistakes, and the mistakes are fatal, and they end up with void orders yeah. because they don't take their time. And I know you could speak about that for a long time because you've done that. <laughs> you've avoided <laughs> well, some of those orders. So let me ask you from a from a practical standpoint as a trial lawyer, I mean – how do you how do you know what to, what the order should look like when you go down for the trial? I mean, can a judge do something that doesn't necessarily that you didn't necessarily uh, predict? I mean, how do you how do you walk into a trial on a contempt case with an order already prepared? Well, you already know the violations you're asking that the court hold the person in contempt for, so all those should already be put out in your order. The, the court's either going to find, yes, I, I hold them in contempt for that violation, or not. If so, you just strike through it. And then you're going to ask for, let's say you're asking for uh, jail time. Uh, you can keep a blank. Some people put blanks there because we don't know what the judge is going to do. And then you just have to be very specific and careful with the judge and have them go through each line and say, what amount of time are you finding for this? And I always ask for concurrently. So I don't have consecutively or concurrently there as an option. Um, why? Because I think you can get in trouble in, in this moment when you're trying to get the order put in place. So I just have it all concurrently. I don't have to worry about that. And then it just comes down to the fine. And you can put a blank there, too. Uh, you know it's going to be up to $500 for each offense. And, you know, it, the, the judges usually wants to be done with you after they make the ruling. But if you can hold them <laughs> their attention and get them to go through that, it's going to protect their ruling and you're going to get an order in place that'll hold up, which yeah. is important. Which is the important. Right, that's the goal. Obviously, you don't want to go through the whole trial and then make a mistake in your order and right. not be able to make it stick. Right. And as attorneys, we're all very, we won great and we want to get out the door. But this is the one time where, no, you need to stick around and make sure you get it right, even if it's right. annoying the judge. So I had a case one time where I defended a guy who was held in contempt and the contempt order um, the contempt order that they took with them down to the courthouse had a whole bunch of blanks in it and what they had done they had too many uh, uh, alleged violations and it was for things like failure to pay the private school tuition on temporary orders and failure to pay child support failure to pay medical reimbursements all these different like not just a not just a typical child support of like 10 months of non-payment right. it was like different parts of the order that 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 were violated and everything and they had fill in the blanks for the fine well the problem is that the judge in her haste of filling out this order after she sentenced this guy to jail where it said the fine of and a dollar sign and a blank she probably accidentally, or at least I'm presuming accidentally, um, put in those blanks the actual number, the amount of what he had failed to pay. So she confirmed the arrearage in the she fine was trying, section. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she put the arrearage number in the fine, and and that's the order that got entered. And so, let, for example, on the private school tuition, I don't remember the exact number, but let's say it was $6,724. Well, that's the number that she put in for the fine. And so those fines were all illegal fines and they were void. And then in that same case, the guy had asked for um, a jury trial at the beginning of the, of the trial because the petitioner had pled for, con for consecutive punishment and, and had their order had that, like you just said, had concurrent slash consecutive right. for the judge to pick. Well, the judge didn't circle either one. And so it was presumed consecutive. consecutive. So, I mean, that was a fairly quick and easy right. writ that we um, filed and won because, 
you know, the order was wrong 10 ways to Sunday, you know. And and taking a step back, if you want to go back in time where I think those attorneys might have chosen some different paths, I would not mix my child support enforcement with, uh, let's say, school enforcement of payment of school, which probably may uh, or may not be contemptible. Unless it has a lot of child support language (laughs) around it is not contemptible. You know, I mean, they're, they're mixing in some really bad uh, claims with some good claims, mm-hmm. and that's foolish because you're going to sure. get your whole order through. Sure, I mean strategically, you want your content. Like as a petitioner, you don't want to go to all this effort and then not make it stick. Right. So plead your two or three or four best violations that you know you can prove, no shadow of any doubt. Uh, like beyond a reasonable doubt is the standard. Like, you know you've got him on those. And don't plead the ones that are questionable. I think as attorneys, sometimes we want to to plead everything you got. And, right. and in other contexts, that's probably strategically advisable. But in the contempt context, it's not necessarily advisable to put everything you got in there. Well, and people, I think as family lawyers, we're so used to just normal enforcement. And we forget the higher standard. And we forget... Uh, the specificity that you have to have in the underlying order and the order you create coming out of that for contempt. And uh, uh, it can't just be, well, this is, we know what the order meant. And so the judge can kind of figure it out. Um, I mean, that's going to, you know, like you said, it gets real easy for the appellate court real to toss easy, it. Real easy for a real. You and I have seen that issue uh, with attorney's fees being lumped into the judgment as far as like the private school tuition, whatever, the attorney's fees award got in there too. And yeah. it's like, no, you, you can't hold him in jail for contempt of attorney's fees that were awarded at the contempt trial. Right. It doesn't even make sense. Right. right, right. So you have to be, I mean, obviously that's why we're having this discussion <laughs> because your contempt order has to be so super careful to avoid, you know, it getting set aside. Um, so what about... Um, what about the term of the punishment? Like, what's the level of specificity that has to be um, drafted in the order on the term of punishment? Are you talking about how much jail time the person yeah. has? Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. I think I think for each violation, you have to have the accompanying uh, uh, period of time committed if if that's if the court finds any. And again, you have to distinguish whether it's consecutive or. Um, Concurrent. Concurrent, thank you. I was for some reason blanking on the word. Yeah. Uh, And as we've discussed in some of the other sessions, it's so much safer to do it concurrent, especially if you're asking, I mean, if you are asking for six months for every violation, you need to make it concurrent. Yeah. If you're asking for two days for four, then it's okay to do consecutive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be okay. So you mentioned a minute ago the commitment order. What's the difference between a contempt order and a commitment order? The commitment order is the order that instructs usually a sheriff to take possession of the contemptor and go put him in jail, and so it's a very—I mean, that's—it's very specific. It's ordering—it's ordering, it's ordering uh, uh, a, whatever your locality's entity that does that to do that. Uh, the contempt order is the order that's holding and finding the contemptor in contempt. So they, I think they have to be two separate orders, don't they? I've seen them done in one. I mean, I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't either. I don't. I to me, best practice is to have those separate right. because it doesn't make sense to me that you have the contempt order that's going through. I find you know I sustain on these violations right. or I deny these violations. 
you know, I punish you by, you know, putting you in jail for 30 days. It doesn't make sense to me to then go on and say, and dear sheriff, please take this person into custody. (laughs) I mean, to me that it's just logical that those should be separate orders. Although I think that there are some, some orders that get drafted with both in it. Right. And I don't know that it's necessarily void um, to be so wrong, but uh, to me, it's just best practice to have them separate. And I've always done them as separate, so. Um, So what if you have a contempt order that orders the guy held in jail and the guy goes to jail, the judge says, bailiff, take him into custody, and off he goes, and the commitment order never gets signed? I think the commitment order has to be signed. It's the commitment order that orders him to jail. It's it's not the order for contempt. So I would argue that he's free and he shouldn't be being held without a commitment order. So besides filing a writ of habeas corpus in the appellate court, is there any remedy you would file in the trial court if that happened? Thank you. Well, yeah. Carrie, you could move to vacate the order and get him out. Yeah, but I don't know if that's. And that's exactly what you do because yeah. that commitment order has to be signed within a period of time. Right. If he's been in jail for four days and that thing hasn't been signed, he's going to be out of jail, and that's going to be it. Like yeah. he's he's going right. to be out of jail. Yeah. Right. So. Right. So what about a suspended contempt order? Let's let's talk through. You know, you have your contempt trial. The judge finds him in contempt. The judge then says, you know, I sentenced you to thirty days in jail, suspended for a year and then starts putting some terms and conditions in there. So first question, is there a a limit or a guideline on what types of terms and conditions the judge can order, or can the judge just order anything? Well, I don't think the judge can order anything. I think it has to be related to the enforcement action, and then you can tag on some, you know, uh, cost of court can be added in there. compliance with existing orders can be added in there uh and then if there's an arrearage order to be if it's child support and there's an arrearage order and it's ordered to be paid a certain amount uh that that's going to be in there um that's all that's coming to me off the top of my head no the court just can't say you know you have to uh, you know, cook me breakfast every every day to stay out of jail. <laughs> I mean, right. he was a good cook, right? <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, it has to be related to the underlying lawsuit. I like that. Let's add that as a term of condition. You have to cook me breakfast. <laughs> that'd be great. That, that'd be great. We should suggest that next time. Um, so then, let's say let's say the judge enters a contempt order, and it has a suspended sentence in it and then the respondent doesn't comply with the suspended sentence. What happens then? What do you do as a trial lawyer? You file a petition to revoke suspension. And so what are the petitioner's duties and what are the respondent's duties in a petition to revoke? Well, the petitioner needs to uh, uh, serve notice of that on the respondent, have a hearing, get the respondent to the hearing, establish that he failed to meet whatever whatever he was supposed to be doing, and ha- again, have a, a, a commitment order there to send him immediately to jail for whatever that sentence was, 30 days, six months, whatever it was. And so at that hearing, the standard is just whether or not you violated the probation. Exactly. It's not, you don't it, have to go back not, and retry no, the contempt. No. 
Um, are there things that you should not put in a contempt order? Carrie? Uh, you mean as far as like the attorney's fees judgment should not be sure. part of the coercive uh, get me out of jail language? Sure, like um, the case we recently had. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, I've granted the other side attorney's fees and you must pay them as part of your conditions. I mean, I, we've seen some pretty sloppy uh, orders where literally there was violations in there that weren't order there was uh, fees in there that shouldn't have been i mean i don't really know how the judge how they got the judge to sign it other than the judge don't they don't read it i guess yeah <laughs> right so right. you need to catch it yeah you know, as the attorney for the uh, respondent but so what about i had a case one time where there was an order to pay child support and the law had changed between when the case had been filed and when it went to trial and the the legislature increased the max guidelines for child support and so in the contempt order for the non-payment under the order the judge then went on found him in contempt you know all this and then went on to say and your child support is increased to the amount of the current law no. Yeah, that's that's going to be void. You, yeah. you can't modify an order in in, 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 a, in a contempt enforcement action. They're two separate lawsuits. And I've seen so many people <laughs> violate that. I mean, I've seen that <clears throat> messed up in so many contempt orders where I mean, you're you're going along trying the lawsuit like we do in, you know, as family lawyers, but you forget that you're maybe you have a contemporaneous modification pending right and a lot of times we see what or at least what i've seen is you have a modification filed and a contempt filed but the contempt gets heard very quickly right and maybe it gets tried i've seen them tried with a temporary orders hearing you know okay. on the modification where they get tried at once and then like it's kind of this dump it all in right. kind of order and yeah i mean that's a mess don't do that mm. you know because it it's going to void your contempt order we'll post it in the comments but that was the nray mam case that said you can't modify in a in a contempt and, order and if you are having multiple proceedings at the same time an enforcement and a modification split your orders have your contempt order and right. have your modification order don't right. try to stick it all in there together well carrie it's and not i gonna just, work. Got, just got through filing a brief on a case where actually the contempt hearing and the final trial of the modification were heard and it it was it, it technically it was two separate dates but like the evidence just kind of all started running so together at yeah. both hearings and uh, yeah, I mean, it just got it. It was a mess. It was a nightmare. Two separate orders got entered, but the evidence was right. crazy because the evidence was kind of all amalgamated into one thing. So don't do that either. <laughs> try to get your judge to try. Not if you're the petitioner. If you're the, if you're the respondent, you maybe that's the way to go. <laughs> yeah. So what about ethics? We've got a few minutes left on this one. What about the ethics? If you are the respondent and the petitioner is dry, let's assume it's a suspended com commitment case because obviously if it's a if if the guy's in jail, then you know the order's got to get entered very quickly. But let's say it's a sp suspended commitment, so you've got more time to draft the order. The petitioner drafts the order, sends it over to the respondent's attorney, and you see problems with the order. Ethically representing the respondent. What is your obligation? Where do your ethical duties lie? With your client. 
anytime your client is facing incarceration, <laughs> then uh, uh, you don't have to play by the normal civil uh, rule, book, rule book when it comes to giving notice to your opponent. So if there's fatal error in an order that the petitioner wants to enter, I'm going to let that order be entered, and then I'm going to invalidate that order. And I think that's ethically what you're supposed to do. So, so trick question, follow-up question <laughs> to that. You know, a lot of times in, in family court, we put at the end of an order approved as to form or approved as to form and substance and then signature blanks. You know, if a petitioner sends you an order and you disagree with it, you think your guy shouldn't have been held in contempt or, or whatever, um, and you know there's fatal, fatal flaws in the order, are you going to sign off on it? None of it says approved as to form. Yeah. Because I think there you do have an ethical duty not to misrepresent to... Uh, the court and the other side that yes I agree with this this is all right. on the up and up and then the next day <laughs> file my my habeas. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah my habeas to get <laughs> yeah. the guy out because it's a void order so I, I mean I, I think there you, that, exactly. because you have conflicting duties yes but but you know just because you have a duty to your client that doesn't mean you can uh, you can put your own uh, license at jeopardy because of of what you're signing because at the end of the day if you sign it you're responsible for yeah. it so. i mean to me best practice in in contempt litigation representing a respondent defending a contempt case i would never i mean if you have a contested contempt hearing i would never sign off on the order right. ever i'm just not going to do it i'm not putting my signature on it i object to the order you know i might would even have a hearing over the order if the judge wanted to hear objections right. to the order and one of my objections is going to be judge you're wrong for finding <laughs> him in contempt and then you know they're going to get to hear me argue all over again about the merits of the contempt but I would just, I would never sign off as to form on a contempt order. Right, I think that's best practice. Um, and so then, I mean, that kind of leads us to a question that's a little bit more a field of where we were headed with this um, topic. But what about, have, have you ever had a time where you agreed to a contempt order? Yes, if it was probation and I knew my client was going to go to jail if we had a contested hearing. Yeah. That's the only time. Right. Uh, and, and not in a, not a jail order, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> they're 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 still walking around free, yeah. Especially if the terms of probation were such that they were immediately going to be complied with by my client, right? For instance, I have the money to pay all this. Yeah. I can pay it, so I don't have to worry about them uh, uh, being in default and getting the suspended co uh, commitment revoked. Yeah. But even then, it's hard. It's hard to agree to. Right. I mean, I, I would. I would think several times right. about even even in that type of scenario, I would think several times about agreeing to an order holding my client in contempt. Right. Because the future of that, the future potential that your client could mess up, do something wrong, not comply, inadvertently not right. comply, and then have a suspended revocation. I mean, have a revocation of the, of the suspended contempt. I mean, I think that just has a lot of minefields for you as a lawyer from right. your ethical duty. Um, so I would, I know that it happens a lot. I know a lot of lawyers have done it, and I, I can think of maybe one time where I've done it. I, not very often. I've done it once, and again, it was the conditions of the suspension my client could meet almost instantaneously. Because especially if it's child support and my client has a failure of not paying child support, I don't trust them to all of a sudden pay child support. Yeah. And so if you're going to have a 
two-year suspension with yeah. them complying, well, that's that's not going to happen probably. Yeah. And, you know, I'd rather fight it and have the judge put him in jail than have him put himself in jail when he fails because it's, it's much to easier to put somebody in jail on a revocation oh, than on a normal contempt. Uh, got a lot. You got a lower burden of proof. So yeah. you know it is. Yeah. So attorneys' fee judgments. Um, we see that this gets messed up a lot in family court. So when is an attorney fee judgment contemptible, and how do you draft it so that it's contemptible? Well. <laughs> Carrie probably knows more about this than me since she just did it. Uh, an attorney for general's judgment is contemptible when it's based on the enforcement of child support, right. uh, basically. And and so that underlying attorney's fee uh, uh, judgment can, can be, you can move for contempt on it. As Carrie pointed out correctly, when you move to, to hold someone in contempt uh any attorney's fees you get for that lawsuit are not contemptible that's that's not the underlying attorney's fees that you're trying to find in contempt which were in the underlying order so you have to segregate the two in right. your head and if you don't you've got a void order again you so, can't mix so them. let's let's be concrete about it so you have a divorce decree and in the divorce decree one side was awarded attorney's fees those attorney's fees are not contemptible no right so then you have a child support contempt case and, and you're given attorney's fees in the contempt case. Those attorney's fees can be drafted in the contempt order with a required date of payment such that if they're not paid, those attorney's then, fees in a future proceeding could then be contemptible. Yes. Okay. But they're not part of the contempt right then. No. Like, so you have your contempt hearing, your, the petitioner's awarded attorney's fees, they get their judgment. You can actually have specific payment language as child support right. from the contempt proceeding. But then you have to wait for them not to meet those, to file the second contempt right. to right. hold them in contempt of that. Yes. Okay. All right, I think we're clear on that. <laughs> uh, we've about reached our time limit on this uh, session. So we're gonna take a little break and when we come back, Carrie and I are going to talk to you about appellate remedies for enforcement cases, when you can use habeas, when you use mandamus, and when you use direct appeal. So we'll be right back. Stay tuned. Keep in mind that this is a webinar that's aimed at attorneys. This is for continuing legal education. If you're out there watching this, this webinar and you're not an attorney, we welcome you to watch it. But remember that we are not giving you any specific legal advice. We cannot comment on any specific case or situation without knowing all the facts. So if you need legal advice, this webinar is not a substitute for legal advice. Please, please seek the advice of a lawyer as to your specific situation and get specific advice to that. Because if you rely on just what we're talking about here, we're being general, we're talking about general legal pr principles that may not actually apply to your situation. This is for continuing legal education only and we cannot create an attorney-client relationship just through the video camera, okay? Thanks.